Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones, and this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Hey, everybody, it's Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. Here for uh, another episode of Church Planner Podcast, which this is going out to Hector Mora. Mi dragón es muy rápido. Indeed. And this is episode number 12 plus 5. <laughs> Some people would refer to that as 17. I did yes. earlier when <laughs> but pre-taping. I was like, we're on episode Indeed. 12, right? Uh, no. That would have been last month. Yeah, number 17. And for all you guys that are that are still listening and wondering when in the heck are we going to get off character. For all hey, you guys sorry. that are listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Joey. And uh, who's the other guy Jerry. that listens? Joey and Jerry. Oh, and Hector. Oh, and we Hector. Know Hector listens. Yeah, because he wanted to know, took, what's this mi dragones muy rapido? And he's a Mexican. I don't, I, I don't understand. I was like, dude, don't you know? Dude, you should have been listening to every episode, and then you know what that's all about. And you'd know Absolutely. how to say, uh, may the force be with you in Japanese. Absolutely. And, Hector, I think we all agree you have some homework to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go back and listen to old episodes. Which, you know, interestingly enough, the very first episode, still our number one most downloaded episode. <laughs> I think everyone downloads that and then goes, I don't want to listen to these guys. But – then the second most downloaded episode is uh, the one about when it's time to quit. What What was the first one? That was where we just introduced ourselves, who we are. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to listen to us after that one either. <laughs> so maybe we should take that one off. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, yeah, let's talk about us on this episode. But I think I find it. I find it quite interesting that the second most downloaded episode is. The one about when it's time to quit, episode 11. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think because everyone's sitting there going, is it okay for me to throw in the towel? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 we knew when we hit on that one, we're like, this one's going to be hot because 
you know, if, if you've worked with church planners, coached or mentored them, then you know that all of them want to quit. It's hard. You know, it's hard to tell people, look, it is, you are going to have to learn different uh, ways to measure success. And Charlie and I, one, one of our guys, a guy that I trained up in, uh, in refuge Long Beach, um, shared the pulpit with him so he could kind of develop a bit. He's off, uh, now launching into Whittier in California. And we were talking the other day because he's, he's in a more middle class, uh, area in LA County. And we were talking about how do you measure success in Long Beach? Well, you're dealing with inner city. You're dealing with, uh, transient population. Um, so we were just saying, you know, in, in all church planners have to do the same thing. You have to measure, particularly in the early days, you have to measure success by impact and not by numbers. And that's a real shift for people. Um, and it often is the reason guys want to quit because they don't feel successful and nobody likes not to feel successful or to feel unsuccessful. So that becomes a, a real mental gear shift that needs to happen is you have to learn to measure success by impact. And if you remember, you know, Jesus, his ministry didn't take off till after the death of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist in Matthew 11 is in prison. And he says, hey, you know, um, tell uh, through the prison window, he's saying to his disciples, ask Jesus if he's the one. You know, he started to lose heart, started to to kind of doubt not his calling, but Jesus's calling. You know, are are you just a prophet? I mean, nothing's happening here. And uh, so we said, hey, um, why don't uh, why don't you go and give him word? So Jesus tells him, you know, hey, John, you know, uh the, the, the lame are walking, the blind are seeing, um, the deaf, uh, have their hearing restored. And so Jesus measured success, uh, by impact and changed lives, people's lives being impacted. And in Refuge Long Beach, that's how it has to be. You know, we're not a huge bunch of people, but you know, like for example, one of our guys goes to prison. He leads a cellmate to Christ. So we're always seeing people that get saved, get baptized. And then we don't see him for a while. Uh, I mean, we've had three of our guys go back into prison, but one of them in prison leads a cellmate to Christ and, uh, his cellmate comes out and brings his wife and, um, they're, uh, they're going strong. And another girl who, <laughs> funny enough, um, her husband came out of the Aryan Brotherhood. We baptized him. He went back to prison for violation of parole. She uh, was totally skeptical. She comes back two weeks ago because we're eating breakfast outside. She sees us and goes, hey, I remember those guys from the park. I didn't know they're meeting at the school. She comes in, has breakfast, and uh, hears God speak to her for the first time in her life. And uh, the next next week brings one of her friends, one of her druggy friends who comes. Um, we have a barbecue that Sunday afterwards. Unfortunately, her friend overdoses uh, at the barbecue, um, the cops turn up. That's when you know it's a up. good refuge barbecue. Uh, you know, it's not the same unless the boys in blue turn up, man. It's just we don't feel like we've we had don't a have a barbecue in the park until the cops show up. That's when you know <laughs> it's a barbecue in the park by refuge. Hey, we didn't have uh, church services in the park till the cops showed up, man. That was that was like a regular. We started knowing them by first name. <laughs> I still funny. remember you talking to one of our people when we were meeting in the park. And she gotten into an altercation, and, and she was homeless, right? So she had a knife. That's what she used for protection. Yeah. 
Yeah. And she'd pulled the knife on whoever this person was. And I just remember you telling her, you got to ditch that knife because the cops are coming and they're going to arrest you if you've got that knife on you. Well, that that situation was weird because I saw this guy aggressing on her and she was one of the first people to get saved over at Bixby. And, and, and I see him aggressing on her and I don't know what's going on. So I jump in between him and I'm facing him. Saying, you gotta leave. You gotta go now, man. I don't care who you are. Go, leave. I don't care what it's about. You're done. And I turn around and she's holding this knife. And I swear to you, it's like inches away from me. She's so amped up. She has no idea that, that she's got tunnel you know, vision. She, she's not even seeing you. Absolutely. And, and, and I turn around and, and wouldn't you know, like right then my wife rounds the corner with my daughter. And, uh, and I was just like, Oh crap. This is bad timing. You know, I'm just turning around and there's some chick with a knife like inches from my gut. She wasn't going to stick me. She just, she was unaware. And I, I turned around and was shocked. And so, yeah, then I just told her, I said, Hey, man, you just pulled a knife on him. You, you got to, you got to stash that thing, man. You know, that's, that's church planning in downtown Long Beach, <laughs> <laughs> which is actually but, a, know, a really rich area. You know, we've got a lot of, uh, Upper uh, upper income earners. Oh wait, no, yeah. that's that's actually not us. Never mind. I take that all back. <laughs> so uh, so, anyways, you know, but yeah, you know, with, without going on, going into all that, you know, uh, back to our, our our main point is that um, it it gets discouraging, man, and and you have to uh, learn to measure success by these people, man, um, the individual, not the crowd. Jesus turned his back on crowds and he focused on the individual. And you have to learn that. That's a ministry perspective that if you're going to church plant, you need to develop. If you cannot do that, you need to go take a mega church. You know, what I find interesting, I actually brought up the John the Baptist story with a buddy of mine. Um, I, I've shared on the podcast before that every, you know, couple of weeks i have a dinner with a buddy of mine over at, at my favorite uh, place islands apparently it's my favorite place and uh and you know he grew up in a missionary family though he doesn't claim to be a christian uh today and uh, i shared you know he's recently finally reached the point where he says okay i believe there's a god i don't necessarily know that god is good and he goes i know this is almost blasphemous you know to, to say i'm not sure that god is good but you know he was going through doubts, <laughs> and I just shared. I go, I go, dude. I don't think it's blasphemous to doubt. I go, look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized Jesus Christ, like he he did the baptism. He was there when the voice was, you know, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And here he yeah. is at the end of the race. He's in jail. He's you know knowing that his days are numbered, and he's like. Uh, go and ask Jesus if he's really the one. I go, it's not blasphemous to doubt. I go, if John the Baptist could be there, see all of that, baptize Jesus Christ, and and be at a point where he's like, you know, what's up? I'm like, that's, it's not blasphemous. Yeah, go, just don't yeah. stop at the doubt. <laughs> I mean, let's yeah. let's let's keep going. Let's ask the question: Are you the one? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, doubt. Doubt is something that uh, if you don't occasionally doubt, you're not thinking, right? You gotta, you gotta occasionally go through. I mean, doubting Thomas, Jesus doesn't uh, doesn't rebuke him. Um, Jesus, Jesus appears to him specially, and I think sometimes our doubt 
is an occasion to see God in new ways. And that sometimes that doubt is a little bit of preparation for the Lord to reveal himself. And uh, you see that in the Psalms where the first part of the Psalm starts off with doubt. Sometimes you don't even get the answer at the end of the Psalm, but sometimes you do. And you see his breakthrough and he, he incorporates that into the song. He's very real. Hey, this is where I was at. Worship is that expression of the heart, but it's also the revealing of God's character. So you see both of those. Yeah. But we're going to talk a little bit about character again, and we're going to kind of wrap up the whole, uh, you know, the, the, the prerequisites that Paul gives in First Timothy 3, where he talks about an elder, and he says, you know, he must be above reproach. And then over the last few weeks, we've been kind of breaking down uh, what your character has to look like. And, um, you know, we're writing at a, uh, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're broadcasting, uh, the day after Chuck Smith has passed away. And, um, you know, Chuck was, uh, I mean, it's been all over Christianity today. Um, Ed Stetzer, uh, mentioned that, that no matter where you're at, no matter what flavor of church you have, chances are, um, you were influenced by Chuck Smith. I mean, he really did, uh, pretty much, um, catalyze, or at least his ministry and the ministry of, of Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa catalyzed the way that people did church. Um, prior to the Jesus movement, you only really knew denominational churches, which were quite formal and, uh, and suddenly at Calvary Chapel where the hippies came in, the dress code went out the window. There was a dress code in church. There was a certain, there was you church always music to it only. As Sunday best. That's how I always Sunday heard best. it growing up. Yeah. You didn't dare, uh, before. Of course, I uh, also went know, Baptist. The, so, you know, Sunday best yeah, was like you, really Sunday best. Yeah. But you, you didn't dare, uh, go to church with, um, you know, with your normal clothes on, you, you, you had to wear, uh, Sunday go to meeting clothes. Yeah. And so that all changed. Um, the attitude changed, uh, towards, um, culture. Uh, he was really somebody who wanted to engage culture where it was at, not where's one, where, where he wanted it to be. Funny thing about Chuck is that he hated hippies. He was a grumpy, you know, he's in his forties. A lot of people don't realize he was not a young man. He was, Roughly around his, uh, his mid, mid forties, um, uh, when, when that thing happened, you know, uh, when the whole thing broke. So he was, uh, yeah, I think he was around 41, 42 years old. And, um, uh, he, G. Payton, he a, um, how old are you? Uh, younger than Chuck was at that time. <laughs> I'll have you know. by days, by days, <laughs> by days. There's still hope for me. But, but the, the deal is, is that, you know, he hated hippies. He, he just like, oh, those stinking hippies get a job. And the Lord had to come and just break his heart and change his heart. And it happened through prayer. Um, his wife's heart was broken. And, uh, and then he met a hippie that his wife brought home from Haight Ashbury and a guy named Lonnie Frisbee. That's a whole nother story. Really exciting one, actually. But, uh, you know, everything changed them. But, but Chuck was really, uh, a revolutionary and Calvary Chapel, Ed Stetzer, uh, states that Calvary Chapel was the biggest, uh, church planting movement during the 20th century. And what he says, what was so remarkable about it was that whereas denominations have all these, this protocol to go through, all these hoops you got to jump through, um, all these prerequisites and all these controls, Calvary Chapel spread so fast because it was unintentional and it was by and large unregulated. 
um, someone come to Pastor Chuck Smith and say, Hey, I want to, I want to go, uh, uh, I want to go plant a church, and he'd say, "Well, let me pray with you." And boom! And if the Lord's in it, it's going to work out. Hmm. And that was that was how Calvary Chapel spread out. It's interesting it, that that's how it started because I don't think that's the way it's really today. It's just interesting how things change. Yeah, well, you know, every every movement starts as a movement, but then eventually calcifies. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, kind of what happens in future with Calvary Chapel, because if you remember when John Wesley died, he put in, in charge what he called the, or what his followers called the legal 100. So that, that was kind of the, the structuring and calcifying of Methodism. Um, in order to replace him, they put a committee together, 100 people. Right now there's a, uh, a committee with Calvary Chapel. And because a lot of people don't know church history, they've been saying, Oh, isn't that wonderful? It's not one guy. It's a, and it's just repeating what every denomination has done over the years. When the prominent figure passes away, they put a committee because obviously who wants to be the guy that steps in Chuck Smith's shoes and says, Hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take this by the, you know, God raised that dude up. He was, he was a pretty special dude. And as we're talking about character today, it's just right to, to just pause and, kind of look at him and, and say, Hey, you know, um, he really was a guy who ran his race well and he finished well. He was preaching Sunday morning and with Chuck, I can, I can tell you as a guy who, uh, I heard him last summer preach. Um, it wasn't like, dude, you need to finish. It was kind of like, Hey, how much longer do we get to hear this guy? You know, he hmm. still had stuff to say. He still had life in him. He still had that fight. He was a bit like a Caleb. And uh, even the Apostle Paul, you know, the the older the violin, the sweeter the music, you know. And and Chuck was like that, you know. You know He's walking in the spirit. An interesting um, side note that you kind of made me think about. One of my last books that I wrote, uh, which actually doesn't have anything to do with marketing, it's called "Leader Fail: The Essential Principles for Peak Performance Through Leading and Influencing Others." And uh, one of the principles I talked about was uh, I was just pointing out some of the things that some institutions do versus other institutions. And one of the things that I shared was Harvard was originally started as a seminary. Uh, my wife and I visited uh, Harvard when we were on the East coast one time. Cause my wife, I mean, you know, she loves education, formal education, the exact opposite of me who hated it. So for mm. her just to like walk around Harvard, she was like, this is just awesome. You know, and there's all these plaques on the walls, and they're, you know, they're from when Harvard was started, and it was originally started as a seminary, a Christian seminary. Yeah, indeed, Princeton as well. And today, I mean, they've got a, a religion department, but it's not Christian-based. It's, you know, like world religions. And I compared that to uh, Biola University, which stands for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, or I should mm -hmm. say at one time it stood for that. Yeah. And today, um, and it was started in, I think, 1908 or 1910, something like that. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's been around for over 100 years. And today, if you're a student there, you still have to get a minor in Bible in order to graduate. Hmm. You still have to get 30 units of Bible done, which is why it takes so many, uh, it takes so many people extra time to graduate. Especially if they transfer in, because they don't care if they, you transfer in and you just can do your last two years. You still got to do 30 units of Bible to get a degree from them. But one of the things that they did um, 
is they have uh, – I believe they call it the Little Red Book. And every year the board gets together and they reaffirm what the institution stands for. And they reaffirm how they're going to ad- adhere to these concepts, that it's a Bible college. That that's primarily what it is. So even though it's reached into all these other branches, like it's got a very popular nursing school. Uh, it's got a uh, uh, a psychology uh, school that's actually one of the top in the nation. Something like 20% mm. of all the psychologists in the nation come out of Rosemead. Um, and it, it's a, it's a huge, but like their Bible underscore has not wavered or, or faltered. I mean, that, that's still the, the deal as far as they're concerned. So it, that's what it, it reminded me of when you're talking about like what Wesley did with the, uh, the hundred council, a council of a hundred people, um, what Calvary Chapel's doing. You know, it, it's having some of these things in place because, uh, you know, one of the things that you and I have mentioned, I don't know if it was on this podcast. But people tend to look towards people instead of Jesus, right? So when they see the leader fall or they see the leader die or they see the leader whatever, they because their eyes weren't necessarily on Jesus, their eyes were on the person, um, you know, things start to creep in, things start to change. And that's not where it's supposed to be, but that's just the way people naturally are. So, mm. you know, I like hearing about, you know, some of the things that people have done to look, this is what we stand for. Let's not turn this around and be about me or about, you know, the institution, in this case, the institution of Calvary Chapel. It's about reaching people for Christ. I mean, that that's what it should be about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Does that make any sense what I just said? Or should I have just shut up about five minutes ago? No, dude. No, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, you know, it's... uh it's a kind of deal where you know when when you're looking at, at at the amount of influence that a movement can have. I mean, I didn't know this, but like uh, you know, like when you're saying like you know, uh, uh, Rosemead that that it's you know some of the top psychologists. I mean, this is what we're meant to do. We're meant to be the salt of the earth. We're actually meant to um, influence culture. We're not just meant to run from it. And that was one of the things that Chuck did. I mean, Biola's doing that to a certain extent. And even like, uh, uh, I didn't know this about Chuck, but like the Boy Scouts in 2012 awarded him honors as, uh, you know, uh, one of the men of character uh, that Boy Scouts audit, who, you know, emulated all of the... Uh, uh, properties of the scout law. I don't, I don't know how to say that, but I was a really bad boy scout when I was a boy scout. I, I was a girl scout, but you know, let's not, let's not go there. <laughs> it was the cookies, man. <laughs> girl scouts had cookies. How come boy scouts didn't have cookies? What was up with that? What do they even have? Do they just not need to raise money? Nothing. Yeah, no, nothing, dude. Boy scouts don't have anything. Hey, all I know <laughs> is those cookies are not worth $4 a box. The girls not anymore. No, but they used to be. And you know how little money goes actually back to the local Girl Scout chapter that sells it? It's ridiculous. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm looking at that as a marketer going, this is the greatest rig ever (laughs) because everyone buys Girl Scout cookies. They're insanely expensive and you don't have to give up much of the money. It's a great great rig. Yeah. Well, so so we're just announcing that we've got a church planner podcast cookies. They're $4 a box. And they've got pictures of dragons, very fast dragons on them. Yes. 
So dragon cookies. <laughs> so so here's the deal. Um, you know, we, one of the things that we need to talk about going on through Paul's list again in First Timothy three, we come today to the idea that uh, you can't be greedy if you're going to be an elder. Now, remember, an elder is someone who's going to lead people. So you can't be greedy. Like you, obviously, you're going to be handling people's uh, ties. Uh, offerings, people are going to be giving to the work. You can't be greedy. And uh, you ought to be the kind of person who's willing to make sacrifices for the gospel. If if you're not uh, willing to put your, your, your need to make money aside, you're in the wrong gig. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous for a church planner to expect to be supported his first year. It's not that it doesn't happen. It does happen. People get supported right away sometimes, but that's very, very rare. So um, I, I, I love what Bono said. Um, in his book, Bono on Bono, he actually, they asked him, what do you think America's national religion is? And he said, success. And that that is the religion. That is so wired into us in such a value that we almost see success, monetary success, um, or any other type of success. That's actually our religion. That's, that's the means by which we base anything. Um, so what, what a minister has to do is he has to take the long view. He has to take kind of like how Jesus said, do not store up treasures on earth. Um, my wife and I years ago, uh, went to the mission field and we spent 12 years of our life there. Um, it was not a wise financial decision. Um, I'm a triple professional. Uh, I'm a, a, a teacher. I'm an ordained minister, um, qualified, uh, licensed, ordained, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, I'm a registered nurse. So I'm a triple professional. And yet I made more money. Uh, when I was 24 years old, uh, than what I made all the years that I was a missionary. Hmm. What exactly do you, when it says, you know, don't be greedy, what, I, I, help me understand that a little bit better. Does it mean yeah. greedy in terms of just money, you know, like, um, I, I mean, help me understand that because my religion is success. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, Pete, because you you are a guy who that's what you do. You make money and you help other people make money. And that's not wrong. Um, the, the the reality is Preach you're a marketer. Brother. Preacher. Oh, yeah. You, no, but Amen. you're a marketer. Amen. I mean, that's what marketers <laughs> do. And uh you know, we're we're coming to a place in society where um, some people think if you make money, you're evil. Well, you need to go back and read your Bible where God uh, blesses guys like Abraham financially. Now, you're not making a theology out of that like, like the opposite extreme. But, you know, people always want to swing one end of the scale or the other to e- either say having money is wrong or having no money is wrong. You know, which is it? Which one's the evil one? Well, I, what the Bible talks about is your attitude towards money. And so Jesus said, you know, where your treasure is, your heart will be. And so it's what you, what you actually set your treasure on. And Pete, like, um, I know for you, we were just talking the other day where, um, we were talking about a project 
that's a side project to church planner, but, but something I'm not, I'm not going to mention what it is, but, um, we were talking about another project and we were starting this project to fund ministry, but it is a money maker. And I remember you made a comment where you said, you know what? Like that could suck all my time, but that's not what God's called me to. And I just sat back and went, wow, that's, that's pretty profound. Like that, that is the Lord. Um, in you. And that's your mindset. Your mindset right now is not, hey, I could go clean up in this because no one else is doing this. You were like, look, I want to start this up. I want to generate uh, income for ministry. Uh, kind of like what Mike Cheshire calls a Trojan <laughs> horse. But um, but that was your attitude. Well, that, well, f- for me, it could be a real, it, it could be something that really trips me up because, you know, as we've talked about before on the podcast, my whole life has been about making money. When you're self-employed, it's never about going to work and doing a job. Every day you wake up, you're unemployed. That means every day you got to go out there and you got to hustle, you know, just like that old saying about the lion and the gazelle, you know, every day the gazelle knows that it has to run faster than the slowest gazelle or the lion's going to get it. (laughs) And, and every day the lion wakes up knowing every day I got to run faster than the, you know, slowest gazelle because I got to, I got to eat. So every day, you know, when they wake up, they're both thinking, I got to run. And when you're yeah. self-employed, that's the same mindset. So for me, I look at, cause that other project, which we'll eventually share because it's going to be, it's going to be a Trojan horse. I mean, if the yeah. thing actually, you know, gets off the ground, if we actually do it, it'll be a Trojan horse. It'll be a great example. I think of what church planners can do to help fund their ministry. But you know, one of the things that you and I talked about, um, uh, in Long Beach, where we're at, like our church is never going to be a rich church because no. look at who goes to our church. We've got the ex-con. We've got the guy that's on parole. We've got homeless. We've got people with no money coming to our church. So if yeah. you're sitting there you know, going, hey, look, I want to start up my own church because no one's going to give me a church – and, you know, I need to have 150, 200 families. If you've got 150 to 200 families like ours, that just means you got more mouths to feed. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's not yeah. like you're going to have more money. And so we almost have to do what Michael Cheshire has done. And, and he says in his book, uh, How to Knock Over a 7-Eleven and Other Ministry Training, that they're not worried about losing tithe because they've got these other businesses in the community that they're able to use to help fund their operation. And, um, and that's kind of what we were looking at with this other, you know, side thing is can we use it to fund? But it is a tempting thing for me because my whole life has been about making money and I see something like this and I'm like, man, I could get on this thing and run and turn it into cash. Yeah. And that's a catch 22 because I don't think that that's what God has called me to do. I think it is the church planner stuff. Um, but the church planner stuff we've talked about before, I mean, it doesn't make any money, even though our no. our reach continues to grow. And, and we've had yeah. someone who, you know, uh, was like, hey, you guys should just sell us your magazine and let us, you know, run it for you and with you. But, you know, we, we know it's there for a reason, so... I don't yeah. know if what I'm saying and makes any it, sense. But. No, no, it totally does. And 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 it's the kind of thing where again, it's that hard. It's that, hey, we're not in this for money. You know, if you're in ministry to make money, then you know, you're you're missing out on the joy of serving Christ. Um Paul says, Hey, you're worthy of double honor. It doesn't mean that you're gonna get it. 
Um, and, and, and he's writing to the church saying, Hey, you need to take care of your, your this minister, you know? Um, definitely. Um, you have a right to eat, uh, from the sacrifice on the altar. Uh, there are guys right now who are arguing against paid ministry. And, um, th- those guys are, are, are always so dangerous because, um, people do need to be set apart full time. People do need to leave their nets. I mean, all that is very biblical. And yet you find this weird kind of like, particularly the younger generations, like, no, they're really skeptical. But I got to tell you, if, if, and, and maybe it's because of what we've made ministry. We've made ministry this thing where a dude sits in his office with a bunch of books and drinks coffee and talks to people and has all this power. And I, I get like that's kind of disturbing. But when you read the scripture, you see guys that are just set apart to mission full time. And then there'd be other guys going, no, you know, because we're all missionaries, you know, the whole missional movement, which, hey, more power to you. You're right. You know, being missional is, is the bomb. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people set apart. Um, the Holy Spirit says now set apart Barnabas and Saul to, or, or Paul to the work to which I've called them. And so they got set apart. So there is this setting apart from secular employment and this engaging in mission full time. Um, and yet Paul at times was a tent maker, particularly in his early days of ministry where he says, I worked with my own hands so as not to be a burden. However, what people don't realize is that later, three times in the New Testament, Paul actually calls on those churches to support him. The ones he's already planted. He's saying, when I was first there and you guys were the, my first converts, my first churches, I worked with my hands. Later, he comes back to him and says, Hey, help me reach the next guys. And Paul uses the full time ministry model. And, uh, and so, you know, I mean, so when we you can talk that, about when it talks about don't be greedy, you're saying that it's more <laughs> of the mindset rather it's, than uh, it literally is, is must not be a lover of money. So, uh, must not be one who, who, who loves money. Um, you know, and, and what he does is he actually contrasts it and he says, but a lover of the good. And, uh, that, that lover of the good, um, it, it, it's saying, it, and it's funny, that word good is, um, it's, it's kind of like, uh, this is going to be hard to explain, but as a missionary and as a minister, I get what he's saying, but, it's the like the the good when Paul uses it that way with the definite article. It's an Aristotelian ideal. So Aristotelian meaning Aristotle. Um, Aristotle wrote about the good. It was this ideal. Um, you can call it what you want. It it actually is uh, another word for deep character, a love for honorary. Uh, honor, chivalry, bushido, whatever you want to call it. Um, my name is Earl. Calls it good karma, um, but. But it's this idea of, well, it's the idea. It's an idealistic. That's what you love. You love, you love, um, you love, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Okay. This is why I'm saying I, I, I know what he's saying, even if I can't put it into words. He says he must not be a lover of money, but a lover of the good. Um, this ideal. So he has to love this life, this, this honorable calling to which he's been called to. He's got to love, um, the, 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 I don't want to say the ministry because that can be an idol, but this calling, this, this higher good that you've been called to, that you feed more off of that, 
um, than anything else. Does that does that kind of make sense? It does. And you know, I contrast what you're saying with um, you know some of the people who we know in the church planning world who have made tons of money. Um, take Rick Warren as a as a phenomenal example, right? Um, Purpose driven life takes off. And what does he do? He does the about face. You know, he lives on now 9% of his income and he gives back the other 91%. Um, Okay. So, so you're hitting on it right there. What in the world made Rick Warren, when he made millions of dollars, turn to his church and say, here's 23 years of my income back, guys. I'm paying it all back to the church. Um, and I'm reverse tithing now. 90% goes to the Lord, 10% I keep. Um, some people would criticize and say, oh, you know, give me his 10% any day over my 90%, blah, ha, ha, ha. You know what? It doesn't fly with me. Um, the reality is that dude is giving 90% of the 10% you want. He's giving nine times just what you would settle for. He's giving that away. What made him do that? And so the the term that Paul uses when he says lover of the good means lover of the ideal. And Rick, I'm so glad you brought that up, Pete, because he's the embodiment of that. But, um, but see, and here's my point, too. Look at even Francis Chan, right? Hmm. Who, um, what was Dude, it, $2 million? You're on fire right now, Pete. You're on fire, baby. <laughs> but, but you know, he, he took all that money. It was like $2 million bucks or whatever he got from his book. And gave that all to help stop sex trafficking. And how I kind of look at this stuff when I I hear the stories of Rick Warren, I hear the stories of what Francis Chan did. To me, I look at that and I say two things. Number one, these guys get that the game is not played here. The game is an eternal game. <laughs> Amen. And so it's like, so what if I've got this money today? You know, one day we're all going to die and we're all going to be before God, and what you made in this life isn't going to matter. But yet, at the same time, too, I also look at this and go, you know what? I wonder if there... I I, I would be more than willing to bet that God probably looks at us and says, there's not many of you I could trust with that kind of money. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, what made Francis Chan? Was somebody telling him he had to do it? Did he do it to please people? No, he did it because of this lover of the good idea. And and like I said, it's hard to define. You read commentators, they don't really know how to define what Paul meant. They they point back to Aristotle and say he's, it means idealism. And Francis Chan, that's what it was. I'll never forget Francis Chan sitting down with, uh, I think it was, Josh Harris and Mark Driscoll. And they were asking him, dude, what, what has gotten into you that you've left your mega church in, uh, you know, Cornerstone in Simi Valley? Why have you left that to go to the Tenderloin in, in, in San Francisco and to go to apartment? And he's church planting in, you know, uh, uh, tenement buildings, um, high rises. Uh, that's, that's what he, he's left everything to go do that. He did go, uh, to, to the developing nations. He went to Africa. He went to China. Um, he just went and lived on the edge for a year and was trying to discover where God wanted him. He was willing to go anywhere and do anything and sacrifice whatever he could and put it all on the line. And that, that's exactly what he's talking about. And I think, 
you know, there, it's almost like uh, when he talks about the good, it's it's that idea of like an honor. Um, honor is its own reward, and it can't it can't be taught. It's either there, or it's not. Rick Warren had it. Francis Chan had it. The church planner needs to have it. And I, I and I I joke a lot about the church of six thousand people I turned down when when I got here. Um, you know, and I'm not. You were off my a church horn. with six thousand people. Yeah, yeah. And Are and you I serious? and I serious. I didn't know that. Dude, yeah. Well, I, I I talk about it now when I'm crying and and I've, <laughs> and I've, when I violated the other one and I've 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 had too much to drink and it all comes out. But <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I, I I I was interviewed for a church and I I told the guy on the phone, "Look, man, you know, I'm not your guy because I'm called to church planning." And I knew it was like as I'm talking to the guy. I, I could hear the paycheck slipping away. I wanted the paycheck. I didn't want the job. And 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 so I guess what I'm saying is it, it drives me nuts when I watch church planners um, and all they can think about is how they're going to get a paycheck from church planning. And I think, dude, I've been doing this a lot longer than you have. Um, I've done it a lot more than you have. And I just got to tell you that that's a long way off, pal. It's a long way from here. And, and, and you have to hmm. be willing to do it. There has to be sacrifice in order to do this. And I don't want to make that as a, a, an absolute rule, but it's a general rule. Um, the absolute rule would be saying that you never get a paycheck when you start. Well, people do, but yeah. So, uh, I mean, Chuck Smith would, would tell you that he had to sell. He was a salesman when he first started ministry. The ministry didn't. Um, pay enough, and he was going door to door selling stuff. Um, can't remember if it was vacuums or Which, something. Which, by the like way, that. I think is one of the greatest industries that people can go into when they're church planning is that of sales, because yeah. um, because you are self employed, so that gives you a certain amount of freedom, and Absolutely. you can actually make more money because once you get good at selling. Uh, which is a learned skill. You're not naturally born with the ability to sell. You have to learn how to sell. But once you do, you're able to create more income for yourself. And uh, and that's what church planners have to do. It's like, how do I maximize my income for the minimum amount of hours that I want to put into a job? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like a... Um when I when I planted, I was a window washer. Remember, I remember you bringing up Nigel when yeah. uh, Nigel was on our show that he he gave me that review. Peyton, you know, it was the best w- window washer we ever had. Yeah, yeah. They, they my board asked for uh, testimonials of people that had been impacted by my ministry, and Nigel jokingly put Peyton was the best window washer I ever had. But but I met him window washing. You know, I was I was in business uh, with my church planning partner. He had a window washing business, and we went in as partners, and we made a killing at it. I only had to work one or two days uh, a week, and the rest of my week was for church planning. I'd start off in Starbucks, and then I started working for him, and it was great, man. We made a killing, and uh, and I met so many people on the door in my neighborhood. I mean, it was great. On, on so many levels, it was such a great thing to do. You know, I wonder if that's actually a business that would take off here. Window washing? Yeah. I mean that, yeah. I mean that quite honestly. I wonder if yeah. like in Long Beach, we could get a crew together and just start making money window washing. Dude, you probably got to, you probably got to, yeah, you probably though got to hit the homeowners and in our neighborhood where the church is, they're renters, not owners. So. Well, you know what's brilliant about it though is like because for us we deal with so many ex cons 
And these guys have such a hard time getting stable work. Like, honestly, for us, yeah. a church like us, a church plant like us, getting the people we get, that's golden. That's a great idea. There you see it, folks, on Church Planner Podcast, another Trojan horse is born. So here's the deal. Um, the next part Paul goes into, and, and we're going to finish up here in a few minutes, is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And he throws those together after lover of the good. And together, these make a complete picture. They represent a, a man whose eyes aren't darting at every boob job in church or streaming internet porn behind his office doors. And and what he's really saying by self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, he's saying what you see is what you get. The guy is the same dude inside as what you're seeing outside. Um, if you're into internet porn, uh, get help, you know, get cyber patrol, get net nanny, get rid of your computer. Um, seriously, you know, do, do what you got to do, man. Don't, uh, don't keep living a secret life. You know, he's saying, Hey, you, you need to be consistent because here's the deal. When a guy comes to you as a minister and say, uh, you know, and, and says to you in your congregation, look, I can't stop looking at internet porn and my marriage is going to fall apart. How are you qualified to help him when you're looking at internet porn? I remember the story about Gandhi where a, a, a woman came to him and said, um, please tell my son to stop eating sugar. He eats too much sugar and, uh, and I can't make him stop, but he respects you, Gandhi. And, uh, he said, well, come back to me in a month and I will talk to him. And so she's kind of cheesed off. She walked, you know, took her a few hours to get to him. It was in India. It's hot. And, uh, she, she goes and she comes back in a month and she says, will you talk to my son now about not eating too much sugar? And Gandhi looks at him and says, young man, stop eating too much sugar. And he looks at the mom and smiles and she goes, that's it. You, you made me walk all the way back here and wait a month for that. I don't understand. And he goes, because madam, a month ago, I myself was eating too much sugar. <laughs> And, you know, the, the, the great, the great thing about, um, you know, when you yourself have been delivered from this and, and seriously, like guys, I have, um, net nanny on my computer. Um, I, I have to, I have to really look for pornography if I want it. Um, net nanny was reviewed to be the highest. I personally think every minister should have, uh, porn control software on their computer. It's just a no-brainer to me. It's like, if you're going to be in ministry, you need to have that. If you argue against that, you have a problem. Um, you ought to have it on your computer, and you ought to tell every guy in your church he should have it on his computer. It should send emails to your wife if you're looking at stuff. Um, if you want to be clean, Jesus said with sin, you got to get radical, man. Uh, remember that whole business about if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Mm-hmm. If your right hand causes you to sin. If you want to get rid of sin, man, you could do something radical. And I'll never forget talking to a college student, guy that I love dearly, and he had a, an issue with Internet porn. And I, I just, after trying everything, um, I said to him, well, it looks like uh, you're going to be pretty friendly with your library card. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, it looks like you're not going to be able to have a home computer anymore. And his eyes bugged out, and he said, are you serious? And I said, well, it's either that or have porn, a porn addiction, which which is more important? You know, you can still use the Internet, but you, you got to be in a public Like, I know it's not convenient, but... You know, you're going to take less time to actually go down to the library and back um, than you are surfing internet porn. That's a real time sucker. 
And, you know, uh, I'm just telling you, if you want it dealt with, you got to get radical. So uh, not to go on a major uh, bender on this, but um, <laughs> uh, it's like when Jesus said, you know, better to enter heaven, you know, without an eye or a hand than, than you know, I, I say, hey, better to enter heaven without an internet connection than to be tossed in the flames out. You know, I, I kind of paraphrase it, but uh, taking liberty, but you, you get the point. Mm-hmm. Jesus was being blunt, forceful, and drastic on purpose. He wasn't messing around with sin on the cross, and he doesn't want his ministers who are meant to be proclaiming a gospel of liberation, freedom, and power to uh, be messing around with sin either. Because, guys, sometimes you are the only link people have. I lay hands on people and pray for them to get released from bondage. And you might think, dude, you should be on the God channel with big hair and a like flashy blue suit. No, man, I'm telling you, that's pure gospel. I have to be able to be, and I have to keep myself pure in order to be able to do that with any kind of power, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and obviously, as they, as they continue to go down um, in the passage... Um, from verse nine on, that's kind of the point. He's telling them that they need to rebel against the culture that they're in. So they actually have something to offer to the culture. So all these things are like cultural sins that he's saying, young man, you know, he tells Timothy, you know, keep yourself pure. Uh, and I know like people kind of like roll their eyes at that. Oh, yeah, here they go again, being all, you know, SBC about it. But, uh, the fact is, is, Again, if I'm addicted to porn, gambling, alcohol, rages, um, or, or any other, uh, anything that's mastered me, like Paul says, you know, hey, you know, I'm, uh, uh, all things are permissible, but I won't be mastered by anything. Um, he, he wouldn't let anything dominate him. And to a pagan sin addicted cesspool of a society, Paul was able to say he preached the gospel to them, not only in word, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I, I just think that Paul saw the domination of sin crushed in people's lives. Guys, I've laid hands on people in Bixby Park and watched a 25-year crack addiction just completely bust apart in someone right there, right? And, and, and I'm just telling you, like, God will miraculously deliver people, but you have to be delivered. If that makes sense. It and does. if you're willing, if you're willing to get drastic with sin, Paul's saying that's what you need before you enter. And I'd, I'd much rather have a guy go, you know, maybe I'm not called to be a church planner. And, and Pete and I were saying, gosh, this is heavy going through this stuff, isn't it, Pete? I mean, we were just saying, man, we don't really want to finish up these four weeks. This is tough, but this is like the obstacle course in boot camp, man. This is like when they're making you go through mud pits and yeah, that's not fun, but it makes you a good soldier. And that's kind of what we're doing here. Yeah, so what's the uh what's the next one on the list? Well, the last one is uh that that we're talking about. We're taking them out of order, but um Pete and I talked about the fact <laughs> I I've just had a week where people are punking me all week. So it's very relevant that we're talking about this last one here. Uh not quarrelsome. Um and I feel like giving a good hey, do you like to argue? <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Do you read a book and then think you're an expert? Do you like to prove other people wrong? Um, you know, you, you can't be uh, quarrelsome, um, given to arguments. If, if there's ever anywhere where, you know, Internet trolls existed before the Internet, it's in ministry, dude. Um, not only do ministers devour one another, but they're used to being devoured uh, by, by people in their church. And so uh, Paul's saying, look, you're going to have 
so many times you're just going to have to bite your tongue because people are acting like five-year-olds. Um, and he's just saying, you know, don't be quarrelsome. He tells Timothy later, have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments. I, I quote that so many people want to punk me or argue me. I often, I just say, you know, Paul tells me to have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments. You know Which is qualifies. in itself a slam, right? I, I love it. Because <laughs> then you're basically telling them you got a foolish, stupid argument. You're stupid. God told me not to talk to you because you're being stupid. Yeah, I don't have to talk to stupid people. Paul said so. Yeah, I find it interesting about this particular topic because um, there are a few things in society where you would never question the person who's delivering the advice or you know service, product, whatever you want to call it. For instance, uh, doctors. No one ever starts arguing with their doctor, right? It's like if the doctor says this is what you need, then you go, okay, then that's what I need. Yeah. And interestingly enough, uh, when it comes to so many other types of things, like we make the joke all the time in marketing, right? Because I'm a marketing consultant. All of a sudden, people think they're experts at marketing, even though marketing, much like selling, is a learned skill. And unless you've spent your 10,000 hours mastering marketing, you don't know marketing. But yet they're like, oh, I know how to do this. And for some reason, like when it comes to ministry, the church specifically, it's like people think that they're entitled to, I know the best way that this church should be run. I know the best way that this stuff should be done because they attend church, right? Which is totally different than running the church. It's totally different than um, really anything that has to do uh, with the church. Yeah. I like how in, uh, again, Michael Cheshire's book, ding, ding, um, Michael Cheshire, he says, uh, I, I think this was in Why We Eat Our Own. Uh, he said that he basically, you know, people would say, hey, you know what? I, I think you should get a new speaker. I think you should get some new mics. I think, you, you know, the church needs a new van or whatever. And, uh, and they had this one donor who was uh, uh, pretty well off, and this donor decided to, you know, finally – I think the church needs a new van and went out and bought a new van for the church. Mm. And Michael was like really torn by it because it's like, okay, well the guy, you know, gave us a new van and how many of us would look at that and go, you know, I could use a new van. Yeah. But Michael basically took the van, took all the stuff that the guy has had given them, put it in the van, met the guy for breakfast or lunch and sat down and gave him the keys to the van and just said, I can't let you keep hijacking the church's budget. We yeah. know what we need money for. We've got people who need help. We've got people who need, you know, single moms who need food. And we need the money, not the stuff, because we know where the money should go. And he said that the guy actually took it very well. He never realized that he was hijacking the budget, that he was like, Throwing, you know, I'm a business owner. I know the best way to do this, but you're not the guys who are running the church. And especially for yeah. church planners, if God has given you that particular vision for that church, you can't let people hijack it. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I got an email uh, today from somebody who, um, you know, we serve breakfast to the community and there is such a strong argument 
for feeding people, not only Jesus feeding the 5,000, uh, but even where it talks about... Even when he did the 4,000. Come on. I, yeah, I mean, come on. You know what's, you know, don't, don't wink just because it weren't 5,000. You know, 4,000 significant. Here's, here's the deal is that, you know, the Bible talks about an elder must have the gift of hospitality. And that's because feeding people is a key part to ministering to them. Not only is there a theological implication in the scripture in regards to feasting, and I'm totally ripping off a book right now, uh, called A Meal with Jesus, which is a theological, uh, analysis of meals in the scripture. And I know that sounds like, woohoo, I'm so glad you pointed that out. It is a fascinating book. Um, and it, and, and it's worth reading because, uh, basically it's saying anywhere Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about feasting. Anytime he's mixing with the world, he's usually in a feast. He's at a wedding. His first miracle was a wedding of Cana. Um, it was at a feast. You know, Jesus told parables about these feasts. He goes to Matthew's house, a feast, the Simon the leper, a feast, you know, on and on and on. He keeps talking about how the kingdom of God is often associated with feasting, the prodigal son of feast. So when you've got you know, the Lord's Supper in the church, that was a whole meal, um, a, a, a love feast is what, what it was called. And so you, you had, um, you know, you have this sense of which feeding people is extremely biblical. I didn't go into all that. I, I, I just had a guy who he was getting burnt out on, on cooking breakfast and he said, Hey man, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to be troublesome or, or divisive. And I appreciated that he, that he wrote that, but, um, he went on to say, I don't think it's a good use of God's finances. I mean, we're not feeding the homeless, which, I don't know what church he's been going to, but we're feeding tons of homeless. Um, we're feeding addicts. Maybe I just know more of the background of people that are with us. But I, I think just... that's what it is. I think you know more of their background because I honestly look at our congregation, and if it wasn't for the fact that I knew certain people were homeless, most of them I wouldn't think that. And most of them I wouldn't yeah. think they're homeless, they're a drug addict, You know, because I, I can't tell by looking at people. I mean, yeah, I can't. They yeah. don't all push so, the shopping cart. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and the deal is, is that, you know, what, what I ended up having to say to him, um, in the email was, look, if you're tired, just say that. <laughs> don't, don't have to suddenly attack the ministry. I didn't use the word attack because, you know, I wasn't defensive at all. I just said, Hey, how about in future, rather than actually trying to dismantle a whole ministry, just saying, Hey, I need to take a break from it. And, and you will find often, and, and for me, the best way I've learned over the years to deal with people is not take them super seriously. Um, just to recognize that people are people. Like John Wesley said, um, the best you can ever hope to expect from people is to be disappointed. Now, some people say John Wesley was a pessimist. I'd say he was a veteran who had been around people a long time, been in ministry a long time, and had just stopped being shocked. Right. Yeah. I, nothing surprises me or shocks me anymore with people. Um, I've seen too much. I've well, been in 25 years. And that's the same thing, you know, in, in having run an insurance agency, which, you know, at my height, we only had maybe 20 or so agents. But when you're self-employed every day, you just didn't get shocked when people decided to give up and quit. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm going to go home. I'm not going to try and go out there and get a, a new prospect in front of me. I'm not going to try and make a sale. You just, I mean, you just learn to accept that's the way people are. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, you'll get people who will come in. Um, I think I told you about the guys who came in, and they had uh, 
they had been upset about, you know, the fact that we had somebody in our, one of our, one of the churches uh, over in the UK, somebody had put the picture of Jesus of Nazareth as like a background of the worship. And some guy like took issue with it. And he was like, do you know that, uh, that actor, Jason, whatever his name was, he was in Gladiator, played the old Gladiator trainer, um, died of alcoholism. He said that he was a very sinful man. And I remember thinking, dude, what a stinking Pharisee, right? And, and so I just said, you know, I, I, I thought of the most offensive thing I could. And I said, well, if you think that's radical, you should hear our views on women. Just knowing, like, this is because he seemed like he was uber, uber traditional. I thought that's going to really wig him out. We didn't have any weird radical views on women. Um, we just had biblical ones, but I, I just intentionally tried to offend him even more. Um, was that me? Would that be being quarrelsome? No, no, literally it was avoiding a quarrel. Just literally that afternoon, I got a letter through my mailbox. Um, that said, we're going to leave. He'd only been there a couple of weeks. And I was like, whoo, mission accomplished. Um, I started not wasting time arguing with people. I would just say, you know what? You got churches where like, they would love to debate you on this stuff. We're not that church. And, uh, you know, we, we really don't give a rip. Like I've just learned to tell people, I really don't care, you know, a, about your pet or what it is. Or, you know, but people will take opportunity with a church plant because you're, uh, you're small. Well, the beautiful thing about a church plant is you get a sense that Jesus has to be in charge of the, of the church. So you don't have to be arguing with people about this, this nonsense. You just keep bringing it back to, Hey guys, you know, it's about Christ. It's about Jesus. You know, the only hobby horse we're going to ride here is Jesus. We're not going to ride anything else. Right. So, um, you know, the, uh, uh, like last night, I, I, I had a guy want to argue me and this was a little bit different. This was more of a, you know, some people have issues. Other people have subscriptions and this guy had, he had to, he had some issues and a subscription and, uh, and you know, we're dealing with broken people and I love this kid, right? But he was punking me big time. We were, we, the meeting had just broken up and he made a racial, uh, joke. And, you know, like if, if he were making this racial joke, you know, we have Mexicans, we have black people and he had relationship with them. And that was just something they did back and forth to each other. Hey, honky, you know, um, you know, whatever gringo, you know, that would be fine, you know, um, and, and, and back and forth. I don't mind that as long as the people don't mind, but we were all white. Oh, there was, there was actually a couple of Mexicans there. We were all white and he made a comment about black people. And I turned around and said, not cool. My daughter's black. Uh, both of my daughters are black. And, and I just let it go. Um, afterwards, he hung around, and he wanted to stay and argue with me. And I, I just put an end to it. I said, look, man, if what you need me to do right now is to go through the Scripture and show you how Jesus intentionally went after racism, like with the Phoenician women, like with the Samaritans, um, if you, you know, like with, uh, the Gentiles, um, if you want me to specifically go through that with you, because you need that, I will. But if this is a different issue where you really, you're punking me because you can't man up and say, I'm sorry, but instead, uh, you have to, um, argue how you were justified in making that comment. I said, I don't got time for that. And, and I just, and I looked at him and said, which is it? 
you know, and, and it wasn't being quarrelsome. It was just literally, it was a no nonsense approach. In other words, you, you don't have to be, um, that's the word I'm looking for, um, that I can't say. You, you don't have to be people's patsy. You know what I'm saying? Just because yeah. you're a pastor, you're the servant of the Lord. You're not the people's patsy. Yeah. So, so the more we talk about this, you know, 17 episodes in, the more I get the impression that being a church planner, not so easy. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? You figure it out as you go. I mean, you walk with the Lord and you figure it out. You know, let me just say at this part of the podcast, I am by no means an expert. I make my share of mistakes and, you know, I'm not on here and I know Pete's not on here. We're not on here uh, talking about this uh, because we think we have all the answers. This is what we found out so far. Well, especially not me. I'm an well, expert in, in probably marketing and in the financial markets. But even in that, I'm not an expert in every part of those areas. Like, there's different types of marketing. There's online marketing, offline marketing, social media marketing, direct response, TV marketing. And I can't claim that I know all of those, right? Like Absolutely. I only know my little niche, and that's what I'm really good at. So I wouldn't claim that and, – and when it comes to church planning, I, I, I'm not even in a – I'm not a player, man. I'm not – you know – I attend I disagree. church plant. I disagree because you have uh, – there's church planning, and then there's – Guerrilla church planning. There's what we do in Long Beach. And you you have done an extreme form of church planning. It's pioneer church planning. It's urban church planning. It's multicultural church planning. And it's guerrilla church planning. I mean, it, it, it is so many things that even church planners often don't get to see. Um, that, you know, even, even with this church plan, I'm, I'm learning. You know, this is, this one has been new for me. And we've tried crazy things. Had you told me, uh, five years ago, we were going to be doing, I think you're nuts, man. Um, you know, in our first, in our first two years, man, I was in five or six exorcisms. I mean, it, it's been intense. And, you know, it, it, at some point, we're probably going to talk about that in a future episode. Uh, but the reality is, guys, you know, I'm not here as an expert and please understand. I'm a guy who, uh, makes all kinds of mistakes. And, and, and I think that's kind of the cool thing about this podcast is we kind of got, um, Pete, who, you know, what's great about you, Pete, is, um, you are kind of new to the, to the world of church planning. Um, and I, and I'm not so new, but, you know, you, you provide a, uh, you ask a lot of the questions that the guys who are first time church planners are asking and thinking. And so personally, I think it's invaluable because there's stuff I wouldn't even think to say. If you weren't on this podcast, and, well, uh, you know, to me, the thing that I really find most interesting about uh, church planning with you, your take on it, the the difference is your goal is to reach the lost. Like that's yeah. what what motivates and drives you every day is reaching the lost, as opposed to in marketing, we're looking to convert the crowd that already wants to buy what we're selling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, it's like, it's fascinating because from a marketing standpoint, it, even though there are similarities in how you reach people, you, you're also reaching the people who don't know they want what you got. Right. I mean, absolutely. Christians are like, Oh, okay, well this is a better church over here. They got a better kids program. You know, my high schooler is going to do good in their youth program. 
but that's not what interests you. So for me, I, I'm very fascinated because everything is driven towards reaching the lost, not let's build a, a, a big church that can provide a good income and, you know, and rival. I mean, within, I don't know, five miles of our church, I don't know how many mega churches there are. I know there's a mega church literally uh, maybe a mile and a half from my house. It's freaking huge. They were in Long yeah. Beach. Yeah. And they needed a bigger facility. So they literally built a brand new facility yeah. that is just gigantic. Yeah, they're actually one of the biggest mega churches in SoCal. Are they really? Do you know how many people yeah. they got at it? I used to. <laughs> <laughs> it's more than we got at Long Beach, I know that. <laughs> probably more than actually live in Long Beach. There are probably more people <laughs> on staff as ushers at that church than we've got in Long Beach <laughs> that attend. Long and age. and you know what? Here's the thing. It's it's not just I, I I find that fascinating. Your take on that because I uh, number one I wholeheartedly agree. Not only is it we're trying to get not we're trying to sell things to nonbelievers, or if you put it use that metaphor of the gospel, um, you know that that we're trying to get them to buy what we're selling, um, you know, in in the sense of the gospel, we're trying to get people saved, but also the Christians as well. Where um, we're actually trying, and I'm in this campaign right now, and it, it, it kind of sounds something like this if you check out my Facebook. Hey, Christian, are you bored of sitting in the pew Sunday after Sunday? Have you wondered why Sunday morning doesn't look more like the book of Acts? Maybe the missing ingredient in your life is mission. Why not go on mission with us? I'm actually recruiting right now because we actually need more hands on deck to haul in the nets. We're getting ready in our third year now to see a lot more people coming to Christ, um, coming through, and we actually need more hands on deck to haul the net. So I'm in a recruiting phase, but I'm literally going to the people and appealing to the people who they've been in the big church. They've, you know, had the big kids programs for their kids and their family just is not satisfied. And these are the kinds of people that become invaluable for church planning because it's kind of like if you've ever owned a really nice new house, um, and and then you buy it, and it was always like the dream. And then you sell it years later, and you don't go buy. You go buy a fixer-upper because you're like, well, you know, the dream always was to have a big house. But now I got a bit of land and a couple avocado trees. And you're like, you know what? This is cool. The location is really nice. It's not a nice brand new house, but been there, done that. The thrill is gone. And I think with other people, it's that they want something else. They crave community. They crave adventure. They crave using their gifts. They crave something else. They're craving mission. Those are the guys right now I'm recruiting and morphing into missionaries. I, I love the way you put it on. Uh, you did Brandon Hatmaker's title uh, for our feature story this month, and you put converting uh Making a missionary out of a pew jockey. That's great. What a great heading. Making a missionary out of a pew jockey, dude, that is, that is my secondary hobby right there. That's the apostolic wiring, which says, I'm not just happy reaching the lost. The apostolic gifting involves taking the church out and transforming the church into an outward-focused group of missionaries. It's disciple-making, in a nutshell. But uh, anyways, that's all the time we have for today. We've actually gone a bit over. Uh, that is the end of boot camp. That is the end of the character session. And next week, we are going to talk about the next phase, uh, gathering support, um, gathering your core team. We're going to talk about all these things in the next few weeks. Some do, of I this is the to share, do I finally get to share ideas on 
how to raise support that continually pays you month after month. Do I get to use some of my marketing knowledge, please? Such knowledge is too powerful, Pete. I don't know if we can turn that loose. With such power comes great responsibility. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. So join me and Uncle Ben next week where we tell you how and and by the way you know we're going to continue offering this podcast for free we're offering the magazine for free please share that out with as many people please tell people about the podcast if you're being blessed we want it to keep going out and if you want to give towards the ministry at all uh you can go to newbreedcp.org and you can donate we do take your donations there it helps keep everything kind of running smooth and free But uh, we want you to keep joining us here at the Church Planner Podcast, where we're reminding you that if you want to reach the ones nobody's reaching, you have to go where nobody's going and do what nobody's doing. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Music.